Welcome to the Anime Research Group, a show about the weird and wonderful mistake that is anime. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And this week, in our quest to watch all the shows we never had time for, we look at Hugto Precure, the 15th entry in the de facto Magical Girl series. Will we become converts? Will I complain about the mascot character? Well, find out. <laughs> but before that, how's everyone been this week? Denny, how about you? Eh, all right. I'm still kind of on wind down from uh, an August full of work on PhD. I've watched a bunch of anime. I caught up on Decadence, which is my favorite show of this season. I was quite impressed by the way they handled their story in terms of never settling in for a status quo, always having a new revelation, shifting and changing it up, continually moving, yet never feeling rushed and overstretched. The characters are quite likable in their own rights, and I really appreciate the Fleischer-style animation of uh, the robots in that show. It's it's definitely a show that's worth uh, watching in its own right, but it probably won't end up on this podcast. It's been on my to-watch list for uh, probably since the start of the season, and I'm sure I'll get around to it eventually. Yeah. I've also watched it. Um, it's pretty good, yeah. Uh, also, it's anti-capitalist and, like, not shit at it, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Ian? Well, of course, the major news in my life is the dental work I had. The Now my mouth doesn't hurt when I record the podcast, so yay. <laughs> That's good. Yep. But in terms of anime, I've only really watched one thing, and that's uh, Shoujo Kageki Review Starlight. So it's a decent, if nothing special, cute girls do musical theater show where the personal conflicts get resolved via underground editions. It has a slightly dark tone and there's a nice symmetry in the narrative because there's a story in the story that reflects the frame story. And that makes me want to compare it to Princess Tutu, but I mean, it's nowhere near as good as Princess Tutu, let's be honest. Weirdly, it reminds me of Two Car. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> in the, when you think watch Two Car, you're like, man, this is just going to be like your straight sports show. There's going to be a competition that's going to drive the narrative. But actually ends up being all about like the conflict between the different the people within the given team. So that was kind of a nice surprise. The narrative overall is pretty weak, IMO, but visually not much to complain about. It's inspired by stage musicals, so it borrows a lot of the visual imagery from there, which I always think works very well in an anime format. Can't completely recommend the show. It's all right, but you could just watch Ikuhara. So there's that. That's why I watched. Yeah, I think I think both me and Freya watched up to like episode four, but then neither of us really continued on with it. Though I think we both planned to at some point. Mm -hmm. You've you've gotten most of the full experience, except for like the how they fix up the ending, which was a choice they made. <laughs> As you know, I'm a pretty big fan of musicals, so I really felt like this would be my kind of thing, but it just didn't really grab me all that much. It's because it's not a musical. It just it is a show where there is a musical within it, and so you're only, and you're getting it in trips and drabs rather than being carried through by it. Like that—that that is something that anime has not really done properly. I think there is one, maybe I think it's called Dance with the Devils. That's a proper musical, but it's kind of surprising that that's not really been done all that much. Yeah, I agree. How about you, Freya? Have you watched anything or read anything that? Of interest? No. 
I've watched I've watched an extra episode of this uh, of the show today, so I cheated. Well, Freya, Freya, you can talk about what we watched earlier today. Oh right, uh, for some reason, Denny and I. Well, Denny decided to watch a Dezaki film at two a.m. and then asked me if I wanted to watch it with him, so I did. Why was I not invited? I'm hurt. I forgot about you, Ian. He was awake too. I know. Typical. <laughs> What was it called again? Hamtaro Adventures in Ham Ham Land. Yes, Hamtaro Adventures in Ham Ham Land. Perfect movie to watch at 2am in the morning. Yeah, so you remember those kids' films that are like, the characters go to some, as a group, in a long-running franchise, they go to some new place, and then they spend the whole thing going through wacky hijinks there, while the main character's having a problem in the real world, so... They're dealing with it thematically by fucking around in the other world. Yeah, that's what this film is. Lots of very pretty Dezaki stuff, though. Contrasting the, like, dark backgrounds with the bright uh, fairground ride. Not that many postcard memories, which is his highlight thing. Although, I mean, it's not his only trick, but, you know. Like, the only thing that was really off about it was its human designs, because they just had so much space in between their eyes. Early 2000s. It looks very freakish. Like, it's just amazing how much we can sweep under the carpet by saying it was the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, if, if you're interested, I was also surprised to find out that Dezaki, famous director, directed four Hamtaro movies. I think anyone who knows anything about Dezaki probably knows that. Yeah, but if you don't know anything about Dezaki, now you know. <laughs> So I think our vocal cords are sufficiently warmed up. So, Denny, tell us about the show. Well, Hugto Precure ran from February 2018 until January 2019 for a total of 49 episodes. It is the 15th entry in the ever-popular Pretty Cure franchise that started in 2004, and it also serves as the 15th anniversary series. There was a manga series of the same name that ran concurrently for two volumes. And it had one anime film released in 2018, and one Switch game released also in 2018. I believe it's a crossover film. Yes. The anime was made by Toei Animation, who have made every Pretty Cure series, and were responsible for many early shows in the Magical Girls genre, such as Sally the Witch, which is generally regarded as one of the first Magical Girls show. And of course, the show that popularized Magical Girls in the West, Sailor Moon. They'd had a bit of a slump since the 90s after Sailor Moon, but Pretty Cure was what really revitalized them uh, in that genre, and it's kind of become the de facto Japanese magical girl show. Pretty Cure is incredibly popular in Japan and is the de facto magical girl show. Some cures were even included as ambassadors for the 2020 Olympics, together with characters such as Naruto, Luffy, or Goku. (laughs) 2021 Olympics. (laughs) All right, that, that's kind of everything I've got. So, Ian, tell us about those first three episodes. So the one thing that really gets me about these episodes is how long all their episode titles are. So episode one, for instance, is titled Hooray, Hooray, Everyone. The Precure of Spirit, Cure Yell is born. No, you've, got to, you've got to say it like she says it. No. Look, I am, look, I am, I am the cure of wisdom, not the cure of Genki. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, much like last week with Die Midler, uh, we're going to be following a very standard genre template, only this time, obviously, Magical Girls rather than Mecha. Hannah Nono, that is her name. 
I'm only going to say her full name once. Uh, well, she's excited for her first day at a new school. So excited, she decides to cut her own bangs to make a good impression. It does not go too well. Uh, it's on her way to school that we get the first hint of the supernatural. A baseball is comes flying out of nowhere to hit an old woman, but Hannah steps in to take the hit, and we get time stopping briefly. So our next taste of magic occurs during a break. There's flashing in the sky, and Hannah can hear a baby crying. She follows the sound to the roof, where she's introduced to two helpfully color-coded students, Saya and Homari, who are obviously going to become precures. In the evening, the baby Hugtan and the mascot character, Harry, arrive from the moon, but they don't really explain that much before disappearing into the night. The next day, we're introduced to our antagonist for these early episodes, uh, a tan blonde guy called Charlit. He spies a resentful student and uses the negative energy they give off to turn into a clock tower-like monster called an Oshimaida, and he's using this to lure out a precure. Saya tries to get some of her friends to safety, but we see Hannah noticing Hugtan in front of the monster and goes to save her. As she stands in front of the monster with the baby, she glows pink with Asu power and turns into precure yell. Cue transformation sequence. She fights the Oshimaida, she blocks its attacks, she throws it away before defeating it using her special cheer. You know, like... I hate doing first episodes because they're always the most explanation to give. But I think if you've seen many Magical Girl shows, you recognize the template here. Yeah. Episode two, everyone's angel. Hooray, hooray, Kiranji. I'm dying inside of saying these things. It's the thing our main character says to herself. Hooray, hooray, me. Hooray, hooray, everyone to cheer herself up. I just can't take myself seriously while I see these. <laughs> okay, anyway. This episode is about two things, the struggle to maintain a private identity as a magical girl, a very common theme, and introducing us to our second precure. So at the start of the day, everyone at school is excited, talking about the precure they saw yesterday, and Hannah is a ditz and says thank you to their praise and has to walk it back. After school, she meets with Harry and Hugtan, and they set up a not-so-secret base in the park. It's like a whole house. Harry, who has transformed from hamster into his bishy form, uh, deliver some exposition about the evil organization, Kurai Asu, who are apparently after Mirai crystals in order to steal the future for some reason. Hannah gets closer to Saya throughout the episode, so we aren't very surprised when Saya discovers the house in the park. We learn that she's also been hearing Hogtan's cries, and that following her cries always leads her to Hannah, and that she has also experienced time-stopping. They chat a little bit about how great each other is until they're interrupted by Charlie being a dick again, uh, this time with a gorilla-style Oshimaida. Hannah gets exposed as a precure uh, during the confrontation. Meanwhile, Saya's Asupara grows, and she's able to transform into Cure Angie. Uh, between her heart feather and Hannah's cheer, they're able to finish off the monster. Again, standard AB structure. Okay, <clears throat> episode three. Happy? Cranky? Hugtan's outing. Uh, so this is a Hugtan episode, no prizes for guessing that. And so it provides a bit of hints as to things that are going to be coming on later on uh, in the show. Our starting uh, conflict, I guess, is Hugtan being upset, and none of our three main characters know what to do about it. They've tried everything, they've tried changing her, they've tried feeding her. So Harry suggests they use the Mirai pad uh, to learn how to deal with it. And... Saya plays with it a little bit, and we get a map with a flashing beacon, which they follow first to a Japanese garden, then to a petting zoo. At the petting zoo, some asshole salaryman decides to pick a fight with him because Hugtan is crying and making a noise. 
fortunately, Omari steps in and the salaryman backs down. Uh, we're also introduced to Hannah's mother and sister who have been nearby. And it's the mother that finally manages to make Hugtown calm down with a lot of ease, frankly. Because nothing like an actual adult to take care of a baby. I, I agree. <laughs> uh, so the next major event happens at a tower that's like next to the petting zoo. And this is where Hannah gets the opportunity to ask Harry about Hugtown's mother, which he doesn't answer. Uh, and we got a bunch of exposition. Basically, Kurayasu stole everyone's future, except for Harry's. And Harry escaped with Hugtan using the White Mirai Crystal. And their goal has got to be to get the power of eight Mirai Crystals so they can replenish the White One. And obviously, this is when Charlite uh, attacks the tower where everyone is, using the power of the aforementioned asshole salaryman to create a new balloon-style Oshimaida. Uh, Hana and Saya slip off, they go to the roof and double transform. The fight goes pretty badly for them, but they manage to rally and defeat it. Uh, the episode ends with them all heading to Hannah's house. The light on the Mirai pad is moving away and that indicates Homari uh, having a large Asu power. And she gives some cryptic remarks about her future tragic backstory. Dun, dun, dun. Overall... Pretty standard fare. I mean, I guess like episode three is slightly um, out of it because they're they're really dishing out the the exposition slowly. But I don't think anyone would be too surprised by anything that happened in this show. No, but at the same time, there was nothing really bad about any of these episodes. They were all fairly well made. The characters got across very well. Like we got to see parts of their own personality. Even Homara, who we only really see in episode three, we got to learn a lot more about her there. We really kind of got to see everything we needed to see within these first three episodes. Um, the only surprise for me is that they didn't introduce all three precures in the first three episodes as precures. Yeah. Episode four is when we're going to learn more about Homari, and that's when she's going to try, but not succeed to become a precure. And she yeah. will finally actually become a precure in the fifth episode. This is a nice way of dragging that out. Mm. I mean, we do have 49 episodes to go after all. Yeah, so like I was thinking about this, and one of the things I noted was, I guess because of the age at which this, uh, the age range at which this anime is targeted, so generally preteen and earlier, mm -hmm. they really don't want to overload you with a lot of plot. Generally, there's um, one new key piece of exposition every episode. You can take your time here. In fact, I would say this is probably one of the struggles of our format is that in like a one curse or an OVA, we can cover an entire arc uh, in the stuff we usually do. But right now, we're still not even past the introductory arc. Yeah. I think that this is a show that we're really going to need to come back to to give a, a proper verdict. But... We'll do, we'll do what we can. We've got, we've got stuff to talk about. So yeah, I quite enjoyed all three of these episodes, disregarding the fact that there was no surprise in it, but it was all just really well made, and Hannah was a quite likable character. The series starts with her cheering herself, which we'll get back to, because cheering for yourself and cheering for the dreams of others is like one of this show's central themes. She also, weirdly enough, has her dramatic hair-cutting moment at the very beginning of a show, not towards the final third, where you'd usually place such a thing. 
to indicate character development. I mean, I, I do really like how the first thing that happens in this show is that our main character fucks up her mm-hmm. uh, her character development haircut. Mm-hmm. And then she also kind of fucks up her introduction. She's a bit late because she's helping out some some old grandma, just presenting her as the air quotes like the really good, just nice girl who's always willing to help everybody out, making it obvious for her to be the precure leader. Um, another thing I quite liked about this this first episode already was our villains, who are called uh, Kurayasu, which means um, what does it mean again, Ian? Uh, it would be like Dark Tomorrow uh, is a reasonable translation, I think. Yeah, and this entire villain lineup has a very corporate feeling going on, yes. with the villain being a corporation. When they want to attack, they have to stamp a document, and every monster they summon all seems to be some kind of salary man that's been fired, because the monsters are literally called... Um, Oshimaida. Oshimaida. In episode two, it's a disgruntled construction worker. In three, it's a really grumpy salaryman. Uh, and in the first episode, it's just a student who's clearly having issues with teachers. Yes, but once they've transformed, they all have that feeling of like a um, of a salaryman just yes. because of the it's over, like they've just been fired. And I think it's a really nice uh, kind of representation of a... This might might be reaching a bit ahead, but like the thematic representation of the hard Japanese corporate culture versus the power of hugs and healing people. That was specifically the like aspirational energy of the protagonist, mm, which whereas all the others they have kind of already been worn down. I like uh, co- corporate protagonists. Um, I mean, my favorite example, I guess, is Akiba Ranger. The you mean corporate villains. Uh, sorry, corporate villains. Um, because in in that, which is like a parody Super Sentai show, they've all got names like Section Chief and uh, Division Chief. It's also just fun to uh, imagine like the kids fighting the adults. I mean, that's that's literally what most of these magical girls show are on some level thematically about the innocence and magic of childhood, fighting against a not really refusal to grow up. Most most magical girls kind of desire to grow up, but a refusal to accept the seated-in status quo of the adult world as represented by these shows, to mm-hmm. charge at it with the power of endless possibility and hope to be anything you want, whereas these these monsters are the end result of said world. They're people for, for whom they think it's over because they've been used and let go, chewed up by the company. I do like the idea of having your um, your big corporate villains uh, way they gain powers by is from like disgruntled employees because you know capitalism as a system is about exploiting people. Now, having said that, show is not anti-capitalist because show, show is very capitalist. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. At least the show itself, apart from the toy selling aspect, which we'll talk about later, isn't really like. Yeah, pro selling things. Um, no, de- no, no. But it is about the sort of wow. I can do any. Uh, I can have whatever job I want. The show is uh, is sock dem propaganda. <laughs> I, I call it a capitalist show, but mostly it's because of the toy selling, which we'll discuss later. But I really want to talk about the dichotomy between this kind of narrative of fighting against corporate culture and um, freedom and, and dreams, while at the same time being an absolute vehicle for uh, 
specifically, it's it's probably going to be a show you could read it as being about reforming corporate culture rather than uh, getting rid of it. What what do you think was strong and what do you think was weak in these three episodes? Um, for me, I already mentioned the like fact that I think they're very good about dishing out the exposition mm-hmm. uh, as the as a positive. But yeah, on the negative, I do think that there's a tendency sometimes to throw in things for no reason. Uh, I noticed this particularly in the first episode when we first get introduced to Hugtan uh, and Harry because they've come in and they've realized that uh, Hannah is going to be like someone who has a lot of Asu power. But then they're just kind of, but then Harry's just kind of down on her. He's just like, well, I guess it can't really be her. And he doesn't explain anything and just wanders off because otherwise they would be they get discovered by Hannah's sister. I guess it's kind of like a uh, you gotta keep the mystery going for a little bit longer. It's supposed to be because Hannah's whole thing at the end is that she's she's not strong and she knows it, but she's uh, trying anyway and that's what unlocks her precure shit. So ah, the power of courage. I mean this is actually something we this uh, that's actually something we see with all three. Um the way you unlock your precure is by overcoming some sort of personal uh, belief about yourself. Mm-hmm. I think for me, episode two was the strongest, actually, the one that introduced Saya, because I felt that, that it had these two ideas that it wanted to do the necessity of keeping your identity secret, and I want to introduce a new precure, and it overlapped them in a very good way. Yes, I will say I don't think it really worked as an introduction to her very well because she's a very flat character so far <laughs> compared to the other two. I, I think I agree because um, we're only seeing her through the lens of the responsible student council president and we are only getting hints into what she's like outside of that role. Whereas I personally think episode three is the best of the three because um, I quite like what we get to see about Saya, because during the first two episodes, we see bits and pieces of her, but what we learn from those pieces is she seems to be some kind of delinquent, or delinquent as is a very... It's not the right way to describe it, but she's she's presented as a as the cool troublemaker with, like, the shorter skirt, the kind of slightly cold glances, the cool no, character who doesn't play by anybody's rules but their own. You mean uh, Omari? What did I say? You said Saya. Whoops. Um, well. But yeah, but other than that, yeah, I see where you're coming from. And so we, we kind of think she's this really cool character to be uh, contrasted then with Hannah's excitement and um, Homer's shyness. But then in episode three, we really kind of learned that she's all into cute things and she's much more relaxed than we initially uh, expected to be. And I really like that. That might have been the only really thing that came as a surprise to me within these three episodes, this character setup we've had in the first two, and then what the character is actually like. And I, I thought that was a nice thing. Also, just learning more about uh, Hannah's family, just having her mother in there. Though she was very unquestioning, even with Harry there to explain it. Harry, by the way, the hamster, can't transform into an icky man, uh, who just looks like a visual K artist, and he pretends to be Hugtan's single father. And for some reason, he's enlisted three middle schoolers to help him take care of his baby, and the mother doesn't question that even a little bit. 
I'm not saying this just to disagree with both of you, but I liked episode one the best. <laughs> okay, so we all have a hill to die on. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Mostly because uh, it's all revolves around the protagonist and she's the best part of the show. All right, uh, I'm probably going to disagree with that later, but uh, okay, fine. I think we've covered most of the, like, the plot notes that uh, I think most of us want to hit. Uh, the only other thing is in the third episode, the monster. So in episode one, as Ian said, we have a clock tower. In episode two, we kind of have a gorilla made out of its construction and equipment. And in episode three, we have a giant balloon monster, which isn't actually a bad design. But the actual villain in these episodes, Charlie, or Charlie, doesn't really do all that much. He just kind of stands there and summons the monster. It feels like he's supposed to be like the sort of... Um... He has rich parents in the company, and so they've given it. They've gotten him in decent position. Oh yeah, actually, did you say that? That that sounds about right. Uh, yeah. I'm just I'm just inferring that though. But it fits. It fits. Yeah, from what we see of him, uh, he seems to be a little incompetent, but also kind of eager. He like encourages uh, one of his coworkers to cover up his failure, and he's like very obsessed with like being the one to like go out and get these Mirai crystals. So, yeah, the only I guess there's a few other things. It's like, I really don't get the villain's motivation. And I think that's fine because, like I say, they're dripping out here. I mean, Ian, we just we know they want the ass power. Yeah, so they want the 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 tomorrow power, the Asu power. Uh, and Asu power seems to be, well, crystallized within the form of these Mirai crystals. Which are what the Precures use to transform into their Precure forms. Yes, but the thing is, to begin with, they're only looking for the white Mirai crystal. I mean, I don't know if I should say this because it's obvious, but it's also kind of a spoiler. Uh, it's the babe. It's the baby, because <laughs> like the baby is the one that is sort of seen granting the magical girl powers to the other ones. Also, when they defeat an Omashiedai, like they feed the crystal they gain to the baby. Which is really weird when I think about it, because now we've got a sort of weird internal economy of Asu power, where the baby grants the Mirai crystals, which are crystallizations of Asu power, to the Asu power generating precures, who charge it up and then return it to her. Uh, I feel like I feel like it's more that she hands out the power of the Asu crystals to the girls, so they can then fight against the Oshimaida, who are collected negative Asu power, and they purify it and give it back to her. That was actually another thing I really liked in these episodes: the fact that while they defeat the monsters by like with a special super attack, much like any kind of transforming Super Sentai mech show, like we talked about last week with um, with Daimadler, like if you get a new attack for the first time, it will always one shot the monster. But they they always end it by giving them a hug, and that seems to be what really does them in. And then they're trapped in like a heart-shaped bubble. To a certain extent, that doesn't happen, though, in the third episode. And I think that's why I thought that third episode's fight sequence was the worst of all of them. Yeah. Because it just seemed to be like, uh, well, we were we were getting our ass handed to us, and then we gamberized, and then we beat him. <laughs> Which is fine to do now and again, but it always feels kind of weird. Because it's like, well, what has changed? I mean, it's just like, well, yeah. we believed in ourselves more, I guess. I think this is. I think a lot of this is either going to be explained later or best not thought about uh, <laughs> too, too much. 
like how the villains always seem to know where the precures are. <laughs> just don't just don't think about it. But Ian, that's what we're here for, to overthink shows aimed at 13-year-old girls. Girl, <laughs> <laughs> girls and 30-plus-year-old neats. Yes, yes. Those shows need to be good. And have, and have themes. Yeah, you shouldn't make shit shows for your children. But also don't spend too much time thinking about the eternal consistency of the universe. Uh, I also think it's interesting that they have two different kinds of power, Asu power and Toge power. So Asu power is the tomorrow power, which is what which is what the magical girls generate, which is the powers of the crystals. Huh. Whereas the Toge power is like thorn or prickle power, uh, which is what is like leaching out of the negative energies in which powers of the Oshimaida. Because uh, t- the villains are after Asu power, but to do that, they use Toge power. Yes, it's aspiration versus stagnation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, they don't ha- generate their own Toge power, they borrow it from other people. Yes. Actually, since you brought it up uh, a minute ago, the 30-year-old Neats fan, ba- fan base section of this show made me think, when I did some reading on it, whether it might be comparable to My Little Pony uh, here in the West, the sort of unplanned older male audience to a show that's primarily aimed at younger girls. From what I have read, I don't know if this was true originally, but certainly in the most recent series, we should uh, take it as read that it, they are planned for. Yes, probably. As opposed to being accidental. Partly because um, it's actually not that unusual for uh, magical girl shows to have an older male fan base. Uh, like, this has been true of, like, uh, Fate and, well, Nanoha and Cardcaptor Sakura. Uh, yeah. Do we want to talk more about the characters? I mean, we kind of already described uh, Hannah Nono. She's kind of the Genki girl, but, I mean, her whole... Um, shtick revolves around her aspiration to be older and cooler and is very uh, codified when after she does her uh, pre kid transformation she says whoa I'm fucking hot well she doesn't say fucking but you know what I, mean. <laughs> I do I have to say I've realized that I like um, heroes who know that they're kind of they kind of suck but uh, uh, have aspirational strength anyway which is funny because I don't like shonen at all most of the time but Apparently, it works for me in my Hoshojo. I think one of the things that like it gets mentioned is the I forget which episode it is. It might be it might even be episode four, and I'm not okay. <laughs> so spoilers, where it's one of them describes her as the kind of girl that everybody likes. Yes, <laughs> and that's kind of codified it in her uh, prekier theming, which is she's a cheerleader. So her whole stick is around energizing and uplifting other people, even though she's like. It's kind of interesting that she's always the one to defeat the uh, the monster. The thing, the other thing I really like about her is that she's very flawed, ignoring the like obvious like vanity. She, I mean, she spends the second in the second episode. They have a really good gag where she like wants to tell everyone that she's the precure, and then Harry's like, "No, no, no! It's cooler if you if the, if you don't if you have a secret identity." She's like, "Oh yeah, that is cooler." Also, the other one where she's like later in the episode, there's a little bit where she tries to discourage Saya from becoming the Brekio because she wants to do it by herself. But she gets over that when she's like, oh, yeah, no, she's cool. Also, like most of the comedy in the show revolves around her and her um, excellent comedic facial expressions, which probably courtesy of Junichi Sato. 
because uh, that's his thing. I really liked the bluebird face gag because it's like they usually don't draw attention to the silly facial expressions in the <laughs> in an episode. So that was a nice evolution of that. So to take on what you said about like the way she's animated, it is only her and I believe Harry Ham Harry that actually get the like deformed uh, comedic expressions. Yeah. Uh, we don't see Saya, we don't see Hamari, we don't see anyone else get these like chibification or anything like that. I mean, she doesn't ever get a chibi form, but you know, <laughs> I also think it's telling that she's the pink uh, cure uh, as Cure Yell. It marks her as the most traditionally girly, especially with like the like her bubbly personality. Uh, I do like that she has to like that she's always giving cheers because it's not just it's, she's she has to psych herself up. She's like, but it's just like you're feeling down. Let me say nice things about you. Uh, so she is voiced by Ria Hikisaka, who is the rare voice actress whose career fits on one mal screen. <laughs> uh, this is in fact her only main role uh, as listed on mal. I didn't double check with A and N because I'm a scrub. Uh, she's had supporting roles in some other things, Princess Principal, Violet Evergarden, but not a whole lot. And I don't know if she was an actress or something before this. Well, she, as far as I'm concerned, she sort of came out of nowhere and she's really embodied the role in a way that is is great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that this is maybe something they can afford to do in this franchise, that because they're changing up so frequently, they can they can like try and find new people who encapsulate it. I guess a new innocence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, Saya Yakushiji, on the other hand, she's the good at everything class president trope. She's good at school. She edits the school newspaper. She has a fan club because if you're that good at everything, you have to have a fan club. Uh, they avoided making her the Ojo Sama, which is good. I don't think that fits in this kind of show that well. Although other magical ghost girl shows do have Ojo Sama type characters, instead she's the more demure female stereotype, the calm, shy, polite. Uh, she's kind of a natural at dealing with Hugtan, and so we we feel that she's kind of responsible and. I wouldn't want to say motherly, but I've said it now. Uh, like I said, one of the things that make the thing that makes you transform into a cure is your acceptance of some part of yourself that you were not like really accepting. And for her, it was she really lacks confidence in herself. She's always tremendously complimentary of others, but if someone says, "Oh, you're so cute, Saya," she's like blushing. And it's only when she sort of accepts. Uh, like uh, having a little faith in herself that she actually does the transformation. She's the precure of wisdom. I would say she falls into the Blue Ranger role. She's the most tech savvy, at least as far as we've seen. They put some major attention on that multiple times in episode two, just on the fact that she is able to use Google, which is so cool and so advanced. <laughs> I couldn't do that. I was thinking more about the tablet, but yes, that Google thing was hilarious. <laughs> Uh, I mean, she's also the Blue Ranger in that she's more of a defensive role. Her heart feather is very, like, it's almost like a shield that she does. Mm -hmm. And she's got a nice angel theming, which uh, complements the sense of style and you see in the clothing she wears. It's how her fan club refers to her. You see a lot of uh, angel wing iconography on her. Also, yeah. she has the single funniest line in these three episodes. Uh, you mean the quote from uh, Mother <laughs> Teresa? <laughs> yes. You can do things I cannot. 
I can do things you cannot. Together we can do great things, Mother Teresa, with a note that she never actually said that. I actually double-checked. I, 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 like, <laughs> I, I was like, okay, I'm going to see if Mother Teresa had actually said this. And like, well, it wasn't on her wiki quote page, so that's good enough for me. Again, we've got a relatively inexperienced voice actress in Rina Honizumi. Uh, she was actually one of the winners of the Best New Actress Award in the 2009 CEO Awards. But the only roles that I really thought stuck out was uh, she's Hina in Plunderer. Some people bring up uh, uh, Cicely Von Claude in Wise Man's Grandchild, but, but it's Isekai, so I don't give a toss. <laughs> so I guess my problem with Sire is that, uh, well, she doesn't do that much in episode three, but... Um... Episode two is kind of framed around like other people looking at her, so we don't really get that grounded in what her feeling about things mm-hmm. is, which isn't inherently bad, but it makes the like her like transformation at the end not work as well, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you have a point there. Um, I think with with the with particularly with shy characters, it's kind of hard to do that because shyness is really an internal struggle. Yes, so they kind of need to be the protagonist. Um, yeah. But uh, they clearly had a certain, you know, like the protagonist kind of determines the like general energy of your show or episode if it's from somebody else's uh, yep. main perspective. And they clearly had one energy in mind. So, you know, <laughs> they had to have Thingy be the protagonist at least most of the time. Yeah. So we've talked about the cure of spirit. We've talked about the cure of wisdom. Denny, would you like to tell us about Homari Kagayaki? Yeah. Uh, I've already talked a little bit about her. As I said, she's the kind of tomboy, cool type character who's really hiding the more soft interior. Well, she's not really hiding it. It's just the camera and visual slightly misdirect us in episode one. She's not an aggressive delinquent. She's kind of aloof. Although she she does she does uh, like smirk at Thingy's haircut in the first episode. Other details we have about her that that were quite of ni- kind of nice is that Hannah like immediately like kind of crushes on her a little bit because she's like, oh man, she's so cool the way she walks past me and smiles at me. Like, uh, and if this was school was set in high school, she'd be the prince type character that all the girls are in love with. Yeah, this is why in the notes I specifically used the term. Otokoyaku, which yeah. is the um, Takara Zuka review uh, male lead character, or like uh, my Oshiman from AKB48, Miyazawa Sai. <laughs> she was that type of character. Um, and while we haven't seen her background in these first uh, three episodes, we can we see in the opening like her doing a little bit of figure skating, so we can definitely assume that that's going to be somewhat relevant, especially towards the end of episode three when we see her do the <sighs> if only I could do X again, traumatic injury backstory thing yes. that you see in so many other uh, sports shows of this type. I will say, yeah. that having seen episode four, so I cheated, um, it's handled pretty well. Um, yeah. I really like this like dragging out of her, um, her arc early on because it immediately kind of grounds you and invests you in her situation, mm-hmm. uh, unlike with uh, Saya. So I guess I guess one of my problems is that there's a bit of an imbalance between the three leads. Just in terms of focus they get within the first few episodes. Yes. Yeah, she's going to be the yellow ranger because I don't think I don't know if we mentioned this, but we have Nono who's pink, we have Saya who's blue, and we have uh, Homara who's uh, yellow. And of course, it's not just their uh, clothing, but it's also their hair colors and 
they very nicely themed around their respective colors. I think when we watched it, we noted that in this school, all three girls were wearing a slightly different variation of a uniform. Especially, uh, their skirts all had specifically their colors rather than a school color. That's another uh, slight uh, problem I have with this. There's a bit of a mismatch between uh, the main theme of the show being, yeah, aspirational. We can do whatever we, uh, we can be, whatever we want to be, and then. It, the the precure seem very predetermined, especially in the way as it's framed as they're the only ones who experience the like time stop with Hugtan. But from what I've read of later episodes, they focus uh, on the struggles of um, like other non precure people. So, I mean, it, it, it's kind of inevitable within these first three episodes because you want to introduce your superheroes, you want to show off the cool powers they have. And you also want to show off the the central toys of the show, because at the end of the day, this show is at least, in some major part, a commercial for toys. Yeah, it's just there's a bit of an immediate dissonance there. Anyway, who's the voice actress? Uh, well, first, we see we do, we do get to see a little bit of her outfit as the, as the clue, the most mature outfit of the three precures, because it appears in the um, the end credits. Yes. Like all of the precures age up. But I definitely think of her as being closer to like seventeen or eighteen in the pre- yes. in the uh, upscale version, whereas the rest of them I'm thinking more like fifteen or sixteen. And I think that play that just plays into um, the fact that she's the stylish and cool one. Yeah. And yeah, I would say that like of the three we've seen so far, this is the one I'm most like. If I had to pick best girl, and I hate saying that, <laughs> uh, this, this is who I'm most rooting for. Whereas I think younger Ian would have been really into Saya as a yeah, I like pink and yellow a lot, and blue is, exists. Yeah, I, I, I second Freya here. So yeah, this uh, the voice actor Harris here is Yui Ogura. Uh, she's by far the most experienced, and I think that comes across because they've really had to give her two sides to her personality, whereas the other two kind of only have one. Her most prominent role, or like the role she's that's coming to mind, is that of Rokubu. I don't know if any of you have seen that. Um, no, it was, a, from... it, it was a lolly sports show. Okay, no. Well, she's Hinata Hakamada in the. Have you seen it, Ian? No, and I don't want to, but it seems to be the role that she's done a lot of. Uh, and more recently in Goblin Slayer as the priestess. Ah, my two favorite anime <laughs> lolly sports shows and Goblin Slayer. <laughs> look, 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 I don't get to choose their careers. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think I think we've said enough about these characters. Then, uh... shall we talk a little bit about our mascot? I guess we can. He's a hamster with a chain and a kind of mohawk who transforms into an ikiman. He's comedic relief, and he's kind of there to take care of Hagatan when the main girls don't have time to, and to drip feed the exposition, and to give them all of the toys that they're going to be selling to little children later on. The thing is, I actually really like the dynamic as him as like a 20-year-old Ikerman with the baby. I kind of wish he was that the whole time. Yeah. I, I just think it would be more interesting because one thing I think would be an interesting read of this show is as a communal um, child-raising type thing. Because they're all kind of looking after the baby. The uh, producer does confirm in an interview that this is the thing. He says... However, we felt it was absolutely essential to make sure that this situation wasn't presented as the model case family of two parents together and a baby being born. 
because we were very careful to not to convey the message that everything is fine because there's a baby. They were definitely aiming for this more non-traditional dynamic and affirming that that's an okay thing to to do, like that that's totally fine for there to be a single father taking care of a baby. Cool. So that's nice. That's good messaging. I agree. I don't particularly um, ha- have any like fondness for the hamster version no. of it. He just he just seems to fanboy over, well, mostly Saya because he's like, she will be perfect. I must have her in my collection. Yes. Although he he later turns their like treehouse into a. This is not in the three episodes, but he later turns into in like into like a fashion shop and a hairdresser's, which is uh, yeah, that's episode five, I think. That's actually very reminiscent of like I think original Dore Me, where they all worked in like a uh-huh. fa- witch fashion shop, if I remember correctly. Uh, I, I'm not willing to say he's the gay best friend, but uh, he's definitely the metrosexual best friend. Maybe it has also a little bit to do with the fact that you can easily sell plushies of a hamster to little children, yes. Yes. but if you sell them an adult ikimen to little children, that might not go over so well. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything about them, but one, one thing of note is that he does have two, two voice actors, uh, Junko Noda for the hamster fairy form, and uh, yeah, well, and uh, Jin Fukushima for the human form. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't recognize it. Uh, plus, uh, we all like a, bit, a good bit of Kansai Ben in the game. Yes, yes. It's, not, it's nice to hear a, a different accent now and again. All right, so we, we've already said several times that this show is a fairly traditional, like, magical girl show, but was there anything that you really wanted to point out just on, on how standard it is and, like, it's set up an exp- uh, and narrative? I mean, that's the thing is, I, th- I think we've already said most of it, but um, one thing that I do think, there's a few things that I always find interesting in these uh, kinds of shows. First off, uh, Precure is, I don't want to say more violent than your sort of traditional uh, magical show, but we've definitely noticed that there has been an extension towards like a greater like fight sequences and stuff in the magical girl genre as it has gone on. Yes, uh, that has specifically come from that older male demographic to appeal to that and just to widen their demographical appeal in general. So we so like in these sorts of shows, you have your part, your your A part, which is before the, the 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 break, which is about the drama. It's about the relationship between the characters. Um, whereas the the second part, the B part, is the part that uh, has to bring it to a climax uh, by introducing the antagonist for a for a fight that should resolve the dramatic conflicts from the A part. Also, since I mentioned battling, uh, I will say that although there is a fair amount of violence um i find it somewhat ironic in this in this show because the ultimate healing and uh, the ultimate victory in this show comes from healing the bad guy like he, he gets like a he gets like a metaphorical hug he gets the he turns into like a heart shape and talks about how like great it is that he can leave his job <laughs> yeah like the, the guy at the end of uh, the third episode is like oh man i should go call my mother that was hilarious. It was that was. <laughs> I think I think maybe there's also a little aspect with the just the fact that you have to let them vent a little bit of frustration. They're allowing the monsters to do that through combat with themselves, and also they're just breaking through their anger by beating them down a little bit and then lifting yes. them up again. So the comparison I would want to make here is with Princess Tutu, 
Both of them are magical girl shows uh, where victory comes through healing. But Princess Tutu does it in a non-violent way by dancing with them and just sort of soothing their pain by expressing it through the dance. And you could say that's a metaphorical battle if you want, but I, I, I definitely think that you can resolve these conflicts with them in non-violent ways while still giving a satisfying climax. Oh. Although in Princess Tutu, it's somewhat turned that idea somewhat like uh, played with by the like meta framing of the show, but that's a discussion for another time. Okay, hear me out, Ian. Magic DDR magical girls. Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> Thought so. Watch Princess Tutu. God damn it, watch it. Jesus yeah, Christ. It's, it's, it's really good. <laughs> so when we started off, our initial point of comparison was with the mecha show we watched last time and mm-hmm. how there's these genre tropes and one of the things i pointed out in that episode was that as a mech hero you're expected to refuse the call to adventure to monomyth it because Mm. everyone does (laughs) whereas in magical girl shows they don't tend to have a call refusal in fact i don't think they really accept the power directly they just sort of are sort of bestowed upon that and they're like well this is how it is now they they don't bat against it but they don't also seek it out with the slight exception of maybe homari i think this might be due to the fact that by accepting the call in the mech genre you're very likely to end up killing some people in other mechs like when i think of eureka 7 early gundam the protagonists generally tend to have at least during some point in the series a freak out where they realize they've actually killed somebody so there is maybe an inclination to refuse the call to avoid such a thing uh, as a subconscious part of the genre. Whereas with the magical girl genre, you don't really have that implication. It's generally a more positive asso- association with the powers you've gained. Thus, there is no need to refuse the call because you're only going to be doing positive and he- healing things. Not always, though. No, certainly not always. There, there's always like variations and uh, deconstructions, but... In the in the standard magical genre, I think this might be a way to explain this this non refusal to accept the call. So yeah, since we mentioned Princess Tutu, I think this is a good place to transition to talking about the director of both show, both this show and Princess Tutu. Well, one of the directors of this show, the chief director, Junichi Sato. Yay! So he's got a lot of experience uh he's been working on things since the 80s at least and started off at toei like many people have i would say that his style is a little less uh like easily distinguishable than some of his famous colleagues uh most notably ikahara who i'll get to in a second yeah in one of the interviews we read for this he he noted that he likes to step back and uh let the work sort of speak for itself I mean, just to quickly start off, he sort of got started with kid shows and has worked on many kid shows through the years, but like with uh, stuff like Maple Town Monogatari, which I forgot is now on my list. Of course, it's difficult to talk about him without talking about Sailor Moon because he was the director for at least the first bit of it. And most notably, he worked on it with uh, Ikahara, Junihiko Ikahara. And they, I think they became friends and sort of had an influence on each other's styles, which is interesting because then they went off in their own ways. Um, and <laughs> mm-hmm. Sato was kind of a sort of mentor for Ikahara a little bit. 
So yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then of course they both went off to create everybody's elitist magical go masterpieces, Utena and uh, Princess Tutu. Um, <laughs> so yes, his most famous works are almost certainly Princess Tutu, which we've already talked about, and every every part of uh, Arya, the adaptation of it. Uh, Arya is interesting because usually he sort of ends up in the like. Usually he's like sort of the step back and mentor other people type of director, though of course he still has a lot of influence on how it turns out. In Aria, he's the, the chief director and the series composer, so he's got way more creative control of it, which is interesting. And Aria is is very good. I mean, if, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that that's not an opinion anybody here is going to dispute. It is interesting how often the, like, uh, <laughs> the subject of healing is coming up. And he also co-directed, because he's very busy these days, um, a Manchu, Kozue Amano's other big manga. Just to talk about his style a little bit, uh, one thing he made a point of saying in uh, multiple interviews is that he, when he's storyboarding, he listens to the sort of music he wants to be in the, um, in the scene, and then storyboards it around that, which... I'm sure he's not the only person who does this, but it's just interesting, and you can you can really feel it in uh, Princess Tutu and Arya. Do you have anything you want to say about him? I love him. I I also like him. I respect him, but I have not. I am not that obsessed with him. He's Mostly directed... because I haven't actually seen that many of his shows besides yeah. a Manchu. I for some reason he also directed Firebrain, the Puzzle of God, which I watched like forty <laughs> yes. episodes of. And I have no memory of besides the fact that I watched it. <laughs> I should probably watch that sometime. Um, he's directed two of my favorite shows, so I can't exactly say that I don't like it. Mm-hmm. However, he's only the chief director for this. We also have our series director, Akifumi Zako, who I could not find an interview with, sadly. Uh, this is only, also the only thing they've been chief director for, but they have plenty of episode direction credits on other Toei shows most of it precure to be honest so it's a similar situation to like the director of smile precure being just well it's someone who knows the franchise really well we can feel comfortable handing yeah. it to them yeah, yeah i also feel like it's a bit of a quote-unquote graduation project where they've they've done a lot of episode direction over the years so they like eventually get put in charge and then they hopefully get to move on and do other things <laughs> they have actually also directed uh, toriko which i don't know anything about it's a manga, but it's a shonen battle manga about food. Okay. One thing people say is that he uh, used shadows and lighting a lot, which you can really see in episode one, which they storyboarded and directed. Uh, Junichi Sato, for the record, storyboarded episode two, but otherwise didn't direct any of these episodes, and that's why episode two is the most warm-feeling one in terms of the <laughs> like, composition uh, and backgrounds. And also has the most silly facial expressions, because that's another thing he always does. Yeah. Anyway, so what do we think about the animation in this? And other visual elements? It was totally solid throughout, but it's a yearly Magical Girls franchise where they have to put out 50 episodes a year, so I understand that they have to cut corners somewhere, such as um, they have a lot of, they have recaps at the beginning of every episode. Uh, What else? Yeah, there's like a pre-opening pep talk that we get from Hannah. Uh, there's transformation sequences, and I didn't time the ones in this one, but 
in other precures, they have lasted as long as a minute. Uh, the eye catches the breaker extended. There's episode uh, like next time stuff that it really you can really sort of feel the uh, we need to we need to take our time and not put too much into these episodes. Um, plus, again, we'll, again, we haven't got to toy integration yet, but they need to keep something open for the advertisers to say, ah, but you should do this. Regarding the transformation sequences, I actually felt that it was an interesting choice because usually the way you do this is you have the full transformation sequence and then you cut it down to a shorter version of it for later episodes. So you don't have the uh, unnecessary repetition. That's how they do it in like Power Rangers or Super Senta. So when we got to episode three, when both Saya and uh, Hannah were transforming at the same time, we all expected the, um, the show to intercut the transformation sequences to make it maybe last as long as one. And we just cut from one to the other. But no, they showed both transformation sequences in full length, just intercut with each other. And I felt that was an interesting choice. There are production reasons for why that might be, which we'll get to later. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. I, I suspect that this is just common across um, Precure as well. Again, I have no. I'm basing this purely on speculation. I will say, um, I think that I actually think that like uh, normal animation, in the show is mostly pretty good. In particular, yeah. they spend, they've paid attention to how they animate the three, well, three so far leads. Hannah is a lot more energetic and moving around a lot, and has a lot more like, um, like body language ticks. Uh, she's bobbing around. Yeah, she's where you would cut frames out so you get the more snappy animation. Uh, Saya's the more like, she walks very reservedly. And then uh, Homer is the one who they draw everything to make her seem cool. And then have the immediate contrast when she's like, uh, going, oh, baby's so adorable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for her, it's always about like the the composition of the scene around her. Like, yeah. so that she's sitting on a bench with her arm over it. She's right beside a window looking out. Like, I'm too cool, I'm too cool for this anime. That's a good way of summing it up. Um, also, the fight animation was pretty good. Um, I think this show has... The, uh, the, the, uh, the Sakuga highlights are later on. <laughs> Honestly, so far, the uh, fight scenes are less intricate fight scenes. It's more the cures punch the monster once. The monster punches them back once, yeah. then they special attack and finish the fight. Yeah, the 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 animation is much less like of a problem than the uh, fight choreography. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The only thing that was a bit odd animation wise, but not wholly unexpected, is we have a CG dance idol dance scene as the ending for this show, and I think that's a good point to move on to those two. Then, so what can you tell us about the open? What can you tell us about this? So let's talk about the opening and ending then. All right. So I, I should start with the ending since you, you've already sort of mentioned it. This is mm-hmm. Hugto, Future Dreamer. Uh, this is sung by our three protagonists. Uh, yeah, I would describe it as very much like a Mikamiku dance or Aikatsu yeah. style CG dance choreography ending. The reason you do CG for this is to provide more realistic dance choreography. This is why Aikatsu does it, although Aikatsu has major problems, I think. The more I watched this, the less I got over my initial Uncanny Valley and actually appreciated um, it more. They hit a lot of the classic idol poses. Because the only thing that really bothered me was that it really draws your attention to some of the um, issues that you can kind of glaze over in two-dimensional character design. 
Like I think it was Homari's legs that were yeah. just maybe just like no bad. The music for this is about being what you want to be. That's actually true of the opening as well. I actually think this is the better in that it's less fem coded than the yes. than the opening one is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'll uh, talk about this all at once because my notes and my notes anticipated me talking about the ending after. <laughs> <laughs> So the opening is We Can, Hugto Precure. This is by Kana Miyamoto. She's a voice actress. She's been involved in the Precure franchise several times. She's Cure Sword in Doki Doki Precure. And uh, she's done the ending for some things like uh, Kira Kira Precure a la mode. Like I mentioned slightly earlier, it has a pre-opening, which is just about how you can do everything, which is a nice uh, message to have. But then we get like a... uh, like a, a fashion show of different jobs that you can do, and they're all very female coded in this. Yes, movie. florist, doctor, air hostess, painter, preschool teacher, maid. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the ending, they also include uh, musicians, world travelers, people who are pilots or who own bookstores. I would say that this opening is a day in the life of style opening wake up, walk to school, day scenes. And then the music picks up, and then we get to fight scenes where they show off their special skills. I really enjoy the classic evil villain who is giant standing over the earth, that they have to summon a greater power than themselves to address. This ending, for me, was really improved when I started to pay attention to the lyrics, because the lyrics match the opening fantastically. And not just the swell of the music, but... I, th- I think it's one of those things where it was like when we watched Shin Get Her Robo and it was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. And then we watched the lyrics and we're like, no, this is really good. Listen to the Shin Get Her Robo versus Neo Get Her Robo opening. It's amazing. No, no, no. Don't listen to it. Watch it. Yeah. yeah. Or listen to it. It both works. It's Storm. It's by Jam Project. Uh, it's got some good foreshadowing as in the uh, in the opening as well. But obviously that takes... Uh, you, you need to know that's coming. It ends on a hug. I also like that it ends on a hug. Yes. That's nice. Regarding this listing of jobs you mentioned, uh, Ian, I read an interview with the producer about this. And what he says is, one thing we want to communicate to the kids watching our show is that they have limitless future. Uh, Essentially, Precure's main target audience is girls, so we refer to jobs that tend to be more popular with girls. So the intent was was to list jobs that were more popular with girls. I just think they didn't necessarily see the unfortunate implication of what they were doing. Yes. There was not an intended call of this. These are the jobs you should be having. It was more of a, these are the jobs women currently have. So these are the jobs that are must be popular, not these are the jobs that are kind of expected and placed onto women. That's just a poor, poor indictment of uh, society in general, really. Yes, yes. It's the sort of thing where... All they needed to do to offset this criticism was include one weird job, like the engineer that they have in the in the ending. But yeah, that, that's kind of everything I think we have to say about the opening and ending. Um, Fred, do you have anything on the sound and the composer? Well, I mean, the sound design in general is fairly like standard, like Magical Girl, slightly exaggerated. There's lots of like bubbly and twinkly noises too. I like some of the villains... Uh, music because there was more interesting genres there but it all kind of sounds like um mha music and that's because it's the same composer i don't particularly like his 
uh, Yuki Hayashi is the composer's like big action music, just because I find it a little bit distracting, and not in a good way. However, some of his other types of music, like he uses in uh, Kiss Night, which is not a good show, <laughs> Death or Death Parade, where he gets a bit more experimental, those are good. Also, he does the music for Haikyuu, which is probably more to your like. Yeah, yeah, the music in Haiku is quite a lot of fun, but I, I feel like there is a slight overlap between My Hero Academia and Magical Girl Show, because... Uh, 100%. Because I'm going back to the very fallible categorizations of shoujo and shonen, but Magical Girls is essentially the shoujo equivalent of uh, shonen, of just shonen in general, as the kind of more action-focused shows, rather than the straight-up romance shows that a lot of shoujo tend to be. Then there's shoujo and shonen romance. Yes, but I feel like there is more of a, like, especially My Hero Academia, which is all about young kids with superpowers fighting against villains. And this is essentially the same thing if you boil it down to its very, very baseline. It's three young girls with special powers fight against villains. I saw, uh, while I was reading stuff for this, I saw somebody make a note of uh, it would be interesting to have an MHA-type show for Magical Girls where everybody's, they're sort of an accepted part of the universe by, like, the general population. But that would run into the same um, problematic issues that MHA does with that, so who knows. Yeah, I mean, I that that is one thing of the Magical Girl genre that I think is personally a bit underexplored, is they either fall into two categories, categories we have shows like this which are fairly standard boilerplate magical girl shows and then ever since madoka we have the edgy deconstruction of the magical girl genre uh, with... we haven't even had that many of those is the funny thing like they kind of disappeared fairly quickly yeah yeah but but that that is like the other predominant side but we haven't really had any like like i i'm imagining a sh- um what i would like to see is like a magical girl show where they're all in their 40s and they just have to balance their everyday lives with also being magical girls um, yeah. Because one of the main caveats of this genre is the fact that once you grow up, uh, once you become an adult slash teenager, there is an inevitable implication that you'll always lose your magic because it is connected to the childhood of these characters. I will mention that, that there is a Super Sentai special where they bring back a bunch of the uh, older actresses who are now mums for a, for a special mums Super <laughs> Sentai Sounds, sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I think that might be a fun thing. Like, I have read a manga where there's a grandmother who's a magical girl, but sadly she also just transforms back into a young girl rather than just staying a grandmother. But yeah, um, and I think with that, we've kind of talked about most of the things we want to talk about, so we can move on to our central discussion of this week, which is something that's very, very important to this show, um, toys and selling their toys. That's just why we haven't talked about it at all. <laughs> so I, because um, we saved it all for this. So I read one article from a from um, from Brian Hartheim, who wrote this on Smile Procure, but it basically applies to this as well. So for the creation of shows like Procure, the writers and directors are handed a list of toys and asked to integrate them into the narrative. Though how it is done is always left up to individual episode writers. Unless it's like a bigger, more expensive toy or a central toy to the show, then it might get storyline focus. So most of the roles of these toys aren't fixed. Like you, you might have a clock. So the directors might just get handed the pictures of a clock and they'll then have to figure out what that clock does within the show. 
whereas the toy makers just have to sell said clock. Uh, I quote, the products of Smile Precure essentially organize the trajectory of the series narrative, suggesting ways for the creators to alter or direct the story or character development to serve the needs of the toy's appearance. Essentially, the show is built around the core skeleton of these toys. That's really the most important thing for it, to have these toys in each episode at least once. They need to be continual reminders. That's actually another reason for why we have the extended transformation sequences, because they are the most high-quality scenes of these shows, and thus put allow the show to put repeated focus on a central toy each week with a transformation sequence. Mm-hmm. Often these toys are also linked to like the climaxes Ian mentioned when he talked about the A part and B part of the episode structures. So the toy, the most important, the more important the toy is, the more it will generally feature towards the emotional climax to condition the viewer into thinking it's like a really important thing. And while we don't get this, of course, when anime air on TV, there's there will always be proper ads airing after it. So in the article, he talks about how in an episode of Small Cure they have this toy of a clock, but they don't really explain what it does. And then as soon as the episode ends, the TV cuts to a commercial of said toy with actresses in clothes kind of playing with it. And um, with actresses in clothes... Of course, they won't be naked. Uh, with 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 actresses playing with the toy and just kind of showing off its various features to sell it to the um, to the audience. So my main question I wanted to talk about today with this is how should we judge these shows because they're both at once a highly manipulative uh, vehicle to sell toys to young children, like a capitalist marketing and merchandising machine. And on the other hand, they are their own self-contained narrative that talks about the themes of uh, self-affirmation and fighting against an established corporate structure. Well, I think you've answered your question in the way you phrased it. You judge them (laughs) as both. (laughs) Okay, well, good. Then we can move on to the rating. (laughs) (laughs) And you you look at the, like, uh, dissonance between those two and how the, like, intention of it as a as a vehicle for selling stuff as a uh, manipulative capitalist production messes with the narrative of the show. Sometimes it is the narrative of the show. I will say for Precure, I really didn't notice that they were trying to draw attention to the toys. Part of the thing is I'm not looking for it. Yes. But if I didn't notice it, then it's subtle enough that I don't think, at least in terms of watching it, until you like actually think, oh yeah, this is made to be selling toys, it doesn't really affect your appreciation of it at all. Well, it didn't affect mine, sorry. So, two things uh, that has come to mind. First of all, there is one clear toy that we were being marketed, and that was the, the pre-heart touch phone. <laughs> yes. Well, there were two. There was that, and there was also the spoon with which they feed uh, the crystals. Now, if I wish to buy a touch phone new from Japan over eBay, it will cost me approximately £60. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to get data, but most of the Japanese sites were no longer selling it. And even then, it's hard to tell what the right price should be because Japan's quite an expensive country. The other thing is, 
well, for, that's two in three episodes, and we are only three episodes in. This is definitely something that you would only really appreciate as you watched more and more of the show, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like we've already had plenty of times where they draw attention to Centoy, not directly or in any way to sell it, but it's just, it's always, there's always some yeah. form of toy present. And also just the actual show itself is a product, of course, that any anime is a product to be sold. But most shows run, correct me if I'm wrong here, Freya, but I, most animes are made on a deficit. Correct. Like the actual anime does not bring in enough money to stay in the black. With a few exceptions. With a few exceptions, yeah. So marketing is, of course, necessary. And they either rely heavily on merchandise or they rely on promoting some other media property that they're adapting. Mm-hmm. So there is certainly a necessity for shows like Precure to promote them, to promote their own toys. Yes. But reading, reading said article, it really just becomes obvious how closely the show is built around them. Because as you said, when you watch it as a casual viewer, you don't really notice it all that much. It is only when you really re-watch it multiple times to look at each scene in more uh-huh. detail when you notice it. Oh, well, here's the spoon again. Here it is again. And here's the transformation sequence. Here's, here are four individual shots of the phone. Uh, like the touch phone and it transforming and 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 then at the end of course there'll be ads for these for actual toys based on the on the show yeah so i would love it if we could have watched this with the adverts so that we could really get the full effect but alas one thing another thing we need to consider however is that we are not part of the uh preteen girl market for which they are selling these toys to we're part of the other demographic the Mm. older neat demographic (laughs) Why do I keep referring to us as niece? Whatever. Uh, so the question is, what is it just that we are a small enough portion of the audience? I think I assume this is true, that they don't feel the need to specifically market to us. Or is it being marketed to the neat generation in a different way? Perhaps by... They will buy the DVDs. DVDs, Blu-rays, realistic figurines, perhaps. Yeah. Ball scrolls. Body pillows. Uh, yeah, I have to say, we haven't, we didn't really talk about it, but there was really no like male, male gazy camera, no leering or anything. Even no. the transformation sequences were mostly tasteful. Like the girls were never fully naked, like naked on screen. They were just out. They were just big glittering outlines. They were censored by their assy power. Yes. I mean, yes. Uh, even then, there was no implied nudity either. Yes. But what I'm saying is the marketing techniques that you're uh, talking about, which are specifically aimed for the marketing the products to children, are yes. not really applicable to us as a yes. market. Like the, the marketing technique for older fans is to make a, a show with characters they like or like the look of, and then you sell those, or they like the show and buy the DVDs. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't work. And of course, it's not that we're not going to buy toys and stuff. Like I was salivating just yesterday over a Bandai primaris marine figurine that i am not going to buy (laughs) fucking nerds that's us i haven't bought a toy and i don't know how long i I was looking at some lupin statues because i still really want to loop in the third statue at some point well okay specifically i don't like statues very much but that's just me i mean gundam as like one of the biggest franchises in the world is entirely built around marketing uh toys and in the last two years, I have watched hundreds, like 
400, 500 episodes of Gundam, and I never once felt that I was being marketed to directly, even though I did end up buying some Gundams. <laughs> so, it, uh, you see? Yeah, yeah. It works. <laughs> it does. I mean, I'm, I never denied that it works. So, of course, we shouldn't uh, think to pretend that this is only a Japanese phenomenon. Obviously, this has been happening in the Americas and in Europe for a long time. Transformers is an obvious crossover product here. Like, yeah. Transformers and uh, G.I. Joe always seemed way more blatant about it. I agree. But I think that's partly because of the way that, you know, the, like, Reagan uh, dismantling of regulations or that sort of thing made it so that they, they forced it really hard. It's really <laughs> funny. This is off topic. It's really funny how, like, people have divorced Transformers from the, like, toy stuff. Because when people talk about it, they just talk about, like, well, okay... The main thing I see people talking about is the Megatron Starscream dynamic, which, <laughs> even though it's not very complicated, has somehow become like the most long-lasting thing of that yeah, yeah. franchise. And, of course, has spawned millions of fanfiction. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Lindsay Ellis and her collection of Starscream toys. I mean, I, I would love to have a collection of like every, every form Goku, because like, I think I only have a Super Saiyan 3, a 1, and one base form but i would also like a two a four and uh not necessarily a god and a blue because i'm not really too big a fan of those but like also just just me going off again it works like the toys sell themselves <laughs> yeah so we're all suckers to ignore end. to ignore how the this is kind of manipulative to consumers because that's capitalism it's about getting you to buy things mm. And, and besides, it's the, it's the parents' fault for caving in. <laughs> yes, it's the main like dark side to this. I think is how it like talks about the anime and uh, the like quote unquote business model of the anime industry in general. How the shows aren't are all made at a loss, so they have to make up the money through merchandise. And the way they save money is by not paying their uh, staff very well. Yep. It also makes you worry a little bit more about the influence that these production committees have been having on the content because these yeah. mixed media things have a lot of influence over the content of their shows. Yes, mm-hmm. and that, that that's it's never good to have like or at least I don't think it's ever good to have that much like oversight like that. Well, oversight specifically from um companies. Yeah. Having said that, still plenty of anime that's made primarily as an artistic endeavor. Yeah, yeah. And so it, and those anime still also sell a lot of merchandise. So I guess in the... Uh, never mind, I'll do that as part of the rating. So I guess, in summary, it's complicated. <laughs> Be aware of how these shows are um, being designed, but also enjoy them if you think they're good. All right, and with that, I think we've talked about everything plenty, so I think it's time to finally give our verdicts. Ian, how many chimes would you cheer for this show out of five? How many chimes would he cheer? How many How many times would he cheer? Well, given that I didn't even cheer during the uh, episode titles, I guess that's zero. <laughs> 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 but to answer the real question... I mean, it's a good show. I mean, I enjoyed it. The only question is, is a three or is a three and a half? Uh, because I don't think it made it to a four for me. I think, I think I'm willing to say three and a half. So, hip, hip, hey. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, as for me, yeah, I I think I mirror that sentiment. As I said, there was nothing really negative or anything about the show, barring the fact that it wasn't very surprising, but it's the first three episodes. We need to set up all the formulaic stuff, and we'll probably get to much more interesting stuff later on. Most of the characters were fairly likable and enjoyable to watch. Like, yeah, 3.5. This is not a bad show in any way. Freya? This is kind of where having a numbered rating system falls flat. I don't know how to easily convey the fact that I think this show is good and I will watch more of it, but I wasn't ever really like, yeah, while I was watching it. (laughs) I like the main character a lot. I like how it looks. Yet there is that dissonance between how it's being made to sell toys and how it's uh, also a show to like appreciate and uh i guess i'll just have to get over that if i'm gonna watch more of it three and a half we're agreeing with each other a lot recently what's wrong with us it's disappointing (laughs) we need more arguments did anyone actually find facts well i just have one fact i want to mention namely the fact that the film of this show is in the guinness world records book for most magical warriors in an anime film with a total of 55 cures. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Avengers. This is the greatest crossover. Actually, that probably still goes to like the Power Rangers legendary, uh, to the yes. Super Sentai legendary war. This isn't really like a fact or anything, but um, the credited creator for this show is Izumi Toda, which. Um, is just the name that Toei uses, or it's like general group of people who come up with the ideas for shows. So Izumi Toda is also the original creator of every other Precure hmm. show and other stuff. All right, then. So, Ian, what will we be watching? Why is that sentence so hard to say to me? What will we be watching next week? We will be watching Noei. Nine. Nine? Nine? One of those. Yeah. Nine. Nothing about. We're the Anime Research Group, a weekly podcast coming out every Thursday, more or less. If you'd like to tell us what you thought of the episode, or suggest something for future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at research underscore anime, or drop us an email at researchanime at gmail.com, 